Welcome into episode 31 of the Mormon Hope Podcast. I'm Brandon Vaughn along with Dave Malinak. We're two Baptist pastors who live and pastor in the heart of Mormon country, Utah, and we love to use this podcast as a means by which to define and defend our Christian faith as well as compare and contrast with the faith of our LDS neighbors and friends. And last week, we did a special on Thanksgiving. Yep. And by the way, did you have a good Thanksgiving? I had a great Thanksgiving. Great food. My wife always great cook. And uh, lots of turkey. In fact, um, you know, it's just a side note on the blessing of God. But one of the things I enjoy about Thanksgiving is that after we pass the plates and we had guests at our house, friends, and so on, uh, we pass the plates and we fill our plates with food. And then we look at all the food on the middle of the table, and it looks like nobody even took anything. I know, and, right? Uh, it's, you know, we really are blessed. I, I know that some would look at that as a mark of greed, but uh, I think that when we have these times of feasting, that one of the things that you notice about it is the abundance. That's part of feasting oh, yeah. and the joy of that. We had a good Thanksgiving. We ate with some of our church members and... Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there is, there's so many transplants here in Utah. Right. And so uh, my family being from Alabama, uh, the Williams family from Oregon, and the Crockett family from Virginia, we all got together. Uh-huh. And uh, Sean uh, was the one that hosted us, and he smoked a turkey oh. for the first time ever, first time <laughs> he's tried it. And I thought it was kind of funny and a bit stereotypical. But he looked up a fat guy from Mississippi and watched his video on how to smoke a turkey. He said, well, you know that, that guy knows what he's talking yeah, about. It was, right. it was really good. We had really great conversation. And, uh, in fact, um, I, I used to watch a lot of football on Thanksgiving, but I did not watch any football. Well, I did because Alabama, my boys, played uh-huh. Auburn. Oh. That other team down there on the yeah, plane. Yeah, but that wasn't on Thanksgiving Day. Well, it was on Saturday, uh-huh. and they about gave me a heart attack. <laughs> they scored a touchdown to tie the game with 20 seconds left, and it took four overtimes to put them away. Yeah, yeah. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. <laughs> I didn't want to watch the Cowgirls anyway on Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> <laughs> well, Though they lost, so I should, probably should have been celebrating that. But um, yeah. anyway. And uh, the other game is, I don't know, I'm, I'm not certain that the other teams could win if they were in the SEC, but... Um, uh, probably not. Yeah. Of course, anyway. Of course, then, uh, on another note, my, my grandmother passed away yesterday. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, 91 years old, but uh, I'll be flying out tomorrow to go to the funeral. But she was saved. She knew the Lord. Amen. Had 91 full years. But uh, it's just a reminder, you know, how fragile life is, how mortal mm-hmm. we are. And, uh, I mean, you know, we're all going to die, but, you know, people like my grandmother make you think, well, I don't know about her. <laughs> <laughs> my grandmother was in her 90s when she died. She had just ordered a brand new set of teeth. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. The teeth were on order. They were on their way. And uh, she was in a car accident, actually, that killed her. And oh, wow. I said, Grandma must have thought she'd live forever. You know, yeah. it, it just uh, the teeth had lasted her for I don't know how many years, and um, but she had to have those new ones. And, um, <laughs> but she was fairly healthy when she died and um, just in a bad car accident yeah. that took her life. Yeah, with me, Ma, it was cancer. She beat it before and it came back. Mm. But, um, I mean, we're thankful that, you know, for the saved, certainly this life isn't all. Right. Because if it was all there was, we'd be all miserable, yep. you know. Yep. But um, had a great Thanksgiving, a lot to be thankful for. And we we said before the Thanksgiving break that when we came back, we would have some Christmas specials. And so yeah. this is the first episode of that. And we're going to yeah, be talking a lot. Picture the falling snow, the bright lights, the Botox lips. <laughs> Of a Hallmark movie. This is going to be a Hallmark um, Mormon Hope podcast. Well, if you've listened to any of our episodes, we know how much Pastor Malinek hates Hallmark movies <laughs> and how much I love them. It's See, so... that's like a Hallmark movie right there. <laughs> well, because that's how it works. The, well, the girl hates the guy, right? Yeah. And then she loves the guy. 
and they get married, and then they they know the true meaning of Christmas. Throw in some snow and some flannel, and we've got a harmony. There you movie. go. But uh, maybe Mr. Grinch's heart will grow <laughs> a few sizes before the end of the year. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we're going to be talking a lot about the incarnation because, obviously, that's what we – That's what we're celebrating. Yeah, that's what we're celebrating. Yeah. And, man, this is such a big deal. Yep. I mean, we can't – we can't stress this enough because somebody's view on the incarnation literally defines mm-hmm. what they believe about the person Absolutely. of Jesus Christ, Absolutely. which is the number one issue. I mean, it was the number one battle in the early church. Right. I mean, literally, the entire Council of Nicaea and then the Council of Chalcedon right. was devoted to this issue of who is Jesus Christ, how much God was he, how much man was he. Yeah, and there are those that, of course, because they, I think, can't really defend their rejection of the deity of Christ, will argue that it doesn't matter whether Christ was God or not. Ouch. Yeah, I know. And so, so what you're saying is it doesn't matter who Jesus is at all. And I, I'll accept him the way I want to on my own terms, or else I won't have him, because I won't have him as he is. Well, it really comes down to this. If we're saved— by faith in Jesus Christ, then we better have the right Jesus Christ that we're putting our faith in. If you're serving, if you're trusting in a Jesus Christ who is not equally God with the Father, you're not trusting in the Jesus of the Bible. You're trusting in something you've invented. Well, it's it's essentially a graven image. Right. It's exactly it what it is. It's, it is. A, it's, it's a Jesus. A substitute. Yes, it's a Jesus conjured up in the imagination of yeah. sinful men and women. And besides that, if Jesus is not fully God, then we have to deal with a lot of the things that he said in his life um, that where he claimed to be equal with God. And um, so when we when we start looking at that, then we find that Jesus is, as C.S. Lewis said, either a liar, a lunatic, um, or well, the Lord. And, and speaking of C.S. Lewis, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we went to see the documentary in theaters, The Most mm-hmm. Unlikely Convert. Mm-hmm. And it talks about how C.S. Lewis went from being an atheistic Oxford professor to mm-hmm. a born-again Christian writing to that end. Uh, I would highly recommend his book, Mere Christianity, or his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Yeah, But there's a scene in that movie where... You know, he's thought about these things, and he's come to the conclusion that he's no longer an atheist because it just doesn't make sense. You cannot look at this ordered universe and say that it just came from nothing. It had to have a creator. It had to have an intelligent designer. So he's actually—I didn't realize this. um, He's actually sitting at the table with J.R. Tolkien, Mm. the author of Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien had a huge impact on him coming to Christ. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're having this conversation, and he admits to Tolkien, yeah, I've I've become a theist. I I believe there is a God. But, you know, I've been reading the Bible, and that whole Jesus guy, I believe he was a good man. I believe he was a good good teacher and a good rabbi. He was a respectable guy. Mm -hmm. And Tolkien kind of laughed at him. And Lewis kind of got upset at him. He's like, why why is that so funny? And he said, because you, of all people, have not thought very deeply about what you just said. (laughs) And he's like, well, what do you mean? He said, well... What you just said is logically impossible because of the claims that Christ made about himself. He, mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus Christ clearly claimed to be God. The right. Jews knew he claimed to be God. Oh, yeah. That's they took why, up stones to stone Yeah, they him. took up because he made himself to be God. That's he right. blasphemy. They weren't going to do it because he said he was a good man. And so here's, here's the logical inconsistency that Tolkien was pointing out. If Jesus made these claims about himself and they weren't true, he's, he's not a good teacher. He's not a good rabbi. He's not even a good person. He's a lunatic, and he's a liar, and he's not worth our time. Right. And the only way he is worth our time is if his claims were true, that he's right. in, he is, in fact, God incarnate. Right. Because the world had had all kinds of philosophers with some really stellar philosophies out there. And yet, as Paul said, the world by wisdom knew not God. Yeah. And the wisdom of the world couldn't do anything to deliver us from the bondage of sin um, or from the evil that is in the world. And so it was necessary there that we have a Messiah, a Savior, who would come and save us, not just tell us good, give us good advice, but bring salvation to the world. And that's why we need Jesus. Yeah. And the the Lord God in, in, uh, in Isaiah 
says repeatedly that beside me there is no Savior. There is not a Savior for mankind besides God himself. And um, But it was also necessary that God become flesh uh, and dwell among us, as John teaches in his gospel. And it was necessary because there had to be a man to represent the human race and die in our place, die our death. And uh, really, uh, you know, I know we've dealt in the past with atonement and the idea of um, substitution and that this substitution of Jesus Christ was not just an example and it wasn't just to appease the Father, but it was actually to bear the penalty that was due to us yes. so that God could be both just and the justifier of them that believe. That's not the subject matter for today, but it's still important to say that. Yeah, the the real topic of today's episode is the incarnation itself. Yeah. I mean, we know that Jesus Christ was a real person. I mean, even the most liberal scholars acknowledge that he mm-hmm. existed. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of religions that believe that, you know, he came here from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. The question is, who is he? Mm-hmm. Who is Jesus Christ? What is the incarnation? And so that's really what we're going to talk about. And we're really going to zone in on John 1. Right. Because that's right. ground zero. That's the the coup de grace. I mean, that yeah. is it. I think that we'll probably over the course of this month, we'll be looking at um, each gospel's uh, record of the birth of Jesus Christ. Of course, Mark doesn't give any record. In fact, Mark begins because Mark... in in his presentation of the Messiah is starting off at the baptism of Jesus Christ because he presents Jesus as the suffering servant. And what I love about that is um, every gospel writer looks at Jesus from a different angle. Right. And what's interesting to me is you can find that angle at the beginning of each of those gospels. Right. Matthew looks at Jesus as the Messiah. And even in the genealogy, it points to, uh, Jesus being a descendant of David. Right. And that's how the Jews would recognize the Messiah as the, right. a son of David. Yeah. Uh, Mark, as you mentioned, starts at his baptism. It looks at him as the suffering servant. And what's interesting about that, it doesn't have a record of Jesus' birth, like you right. said, because who cares about the birth of a servant? Right. That's right. Uh, Luke looks at Jesus as the son of man, and the genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. That's right. Connecting Jesus right. to the entire human race. Yeah. And traces through Mary as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. Where Matthew traces through David. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, it's the split is at the sons of David. Yes. Uh, Matthew goes through Solomon, the kingly line. Yes. And Luke goes um, through Nathan, the son of David, who's really not a well-known son of David, but then traces from yep. there to the genealogy of Mary. But the the book of John, however, looks at Jesus as the Son of God, and as you read it, you realize it's also the God the Son. That's right. And whereas the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they kind of build the character of Jesus from the ground up. Mm-hmm. In fact, if if you were to read uh, the synoptic gospels as a first century Jew, uh, without all the knowledge of really who Jesus is in hindsight. It would be somewhat of a messianic secret until you really get to the resurrection. But John just comes from heaven down, just right. comes right out of the gate, guns that's blazing. Right. That's right. And that's where we're going to start. And John's point in his gospel is not to say that Jesus is the Messiah, but rather, as um, D.A. Carson points out in his um, commentary on the gospel of John, uh, the point of John in, in John's gospel is to say that the, the Messiah is Jesus. And there's a difference there. You say Jesus is the Messiah, which he clearly is. But John wants to say, who is this Messiah? Well, it's none other than this carpenter's son, Jesus of Nazareth, the man you despised. Um, That's who he is. And so over and over, he keeps pointing, he keeps presenting this big picture of of the Messiah and telling us all these grand truths about the Messiah and then saying, and lo and behold, the Messiah is none other than this Galilean, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son who you despised. That's who he is. And then, and keeps pointing back to that over and over. So the Gospel of John begins in very grand fashion. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
pretty plain right there, pretty cut and dry. It is, for those who would deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And of course, um, we have a couple of examples. In fact, you have an example from uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses in their Bible and how they translate John 1.1, which is not really a translation, but... um, they call it a translation. And I think it's making our way to that point. I think it's important to point out of any possible, you know, textual variants, and there are some that exist, but when it comes to John 1, 1, it's just universal across the board. In fact, I've actually got uh, biblehub.com pulled up on my laptop right now. I mean, you look at the dynamic equivalent translations, the literal translations, um, whatever you want. I've got 50 English Bible translations in front of me, and every single one of them. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You go on and on and on. You You look at any of the Greek text. Just take take your pick. Yeah, there are two text families, and there's some debate over which one should be used. We are committed to the TR, the Textus Receptus, Um, and... Uh, and there are a variety of reasons for that. We don't. Uh, that's not the point of this. But the Texas Receptus, zero variation in among among all that text family. Yeah. Um, and there are a variety of different editions of the Texas Receptus, but zero variant on John one one. But the interesting thing is, and part of the reason there's debate over Bible versions is because of the text issue, that there also is a family of text that's called the critical text. Um, the, and it includes several different editions and and so on um, and copies, but <clears throat> the critical text, um, which often differs from the um, Texas Receptus, so not as often as what people pretend. It's not it's not like a major major thing, um, but on this verse, the critical text does not vary. At all. There is zero variant. So those who say, well, John 1 1 was mistranslated have a humongous burden of proof. Who mistranslated it? It's it's not even, they're not capable of overcoming that burden. There's not even a contrast. There's not even a variance of opinions that you can say, I think this one's closer. It's all the same. Right. So if we go to scholarship, and, and I don't believe that scholarship is the determiner of these things. But if you go to scholarship, there's amazingly zero debate on the translation of John 1.1 at all. The only place where you see people argue that, no, that's not translated properly, it needs to be this, is among groups like and religious organizations such as uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the LDS Church and Joseph Smith's translation. And they claim to have a different take on John one one. Now, the closest to what the proper translation of John one one is would be, believe it or not, the um, the world New World translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses using the word "closest" in a very loose. Oh yeah, it's very- <laughs> not. It's not. And and I only say it amazingly because. Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses translation is just grabbed out of thin air. It so is. much of it is it has no connection at all to the Greek text whatsoever. And it was really a brainchild of Charles Taze Russell. And what's interesting is you can even research this. The Jehovah's Witness claim that the New World translation is actually uh, was translated by a committee, their their committee. But they refuse to give the names of any of the members, and they say the reason is because they want God to get all the glory. <laughs> Listen, I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. <laughs> That's right. You know, that way the, their credentials can't be vetted. Uh, I mean, nothing can be vetted. And mm-hmm. But really, you have the same problem with Joseph Smith. And I, I would just encourage our LDS listeners. You know, we're, we're nice guys. I think if you listen to our episodes, we've tried to be nice. I get a little, I get a little warm about this issue, <laughs> because, I mean, here here's the reality of the situation: either Joseph Smith really is a true prophet of God, that he's the only one that translated mm-hmm. this correctly, and that you might as well just erase eighteen hundred years of church history 
uh, until he got on the scene because they didn't translate it right. God couldn't preserve his word. The church died out. It's nothing but apostasy. Or you have to come to the conclusion that Joseph Smith just sat down with the King James Bible and just flat out wrote it the way he wanted to. Made it up. Made it up. Because here's, before you get into that, I, I want to actually read. I'm going to read John 1 1 from a King James Bible. Okay. And then I'm going to read the Joseph Smith translation. Listen, listen oh, yeah. to the difference here. Uh, the King James says, John 1 1, in the beginning was the Word, with a capital W. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mm-hmm. We find in verse 14, obviously, in the Word. Uh, was made flesh and dwelt among us. Mm-hmm. The incarnation, God yep. coming to this earth in yep. human flesh. Couldn't even be clear, but listen at what uh, Joseph Smith says. I mean, this is so, it's just atrocious. He says, in the beginning was the gospel preached through the Son. And the gospel was the Word, and the Word was with the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was of God. Right, right. Just a, a butchering. And by the way, not only is that a butchering, you're, you're saying that uh, Jesus isn't God. He's, he's just simply of God. Right about, right. about the same thing that Arius taught. Yeah. But by the time you get to verse 14, it, it does say, and I want to scroll down and read this here, uh, but verse 14 in the Joseph Smith translation, it says, and the same word was made flesh and dwelt among us. <laughs> but in verse 1, he says that the gospel was the word. Was the, so did the gospel... Yeah become flesh i mean yeah. I, what do you even say to that yeah i mean john 1 1 according to the joseph smith translation doesn't even say what the word was and then tells us that the word was made flesh so this word it it's there's again there's no connection to reality at all and there's not even an attempt at a translation there's there is absolutely no way that you could look at the tr Look at any Greek manuscript, any Greek manuscript, and come up with what Joseph Smith came up with. It's, it's not even an attempt at a translation, right? Either God gave it to him supernaturally, or he just made it up, right? Right. And we're going with the latter. But God didn't give him give it to him supernaturally because to do so would be to uh, turn out His word to yeah. to discard it. Well, I was I'm totally. saying that facetiously. Oh yeah, it's just That's so, right. it's just so far fetched. Right. This is not a rewriting, and God was not as as is taught that um, Joseph Smith was restoring the gospel. Right here, he is tra- trashing the gospel. Yes, um, totally. And um, in this, uh, this is. I think yet more evidence of the spurious nature of Joseph Smith as a prophet yes. of God. But another thing, and and I would point this out that, um, and this is I think an important truth, one that we shouldn't overlook, that um, when it comes to prophets, Hebrews one and verse one and two says this: God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the, uh, I'm sorry, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So the Bible is saying that there came a point where God no longer spoke by prophets, that he spoke by his Son. And it's interesting that John 1, 1 identifies Jesus as the Word. It's a title for Jesus, and a very important title for yes. Jesus, because a word reveals a thought. A, re- a word reveals um, a meaning. When we use a word, uh, quite often, especially nouns, bring a picture to our mind, especially a more concrete noun. So if I say desk, immediately a picture comes to your mind. And if I say zebra, uh, you know, again... Even something like love, even though it may be hard to draw it, we have a symbol that we use, and that immediately comes to mind. So even more abstract things, something like truth is very abstract, so it may not bring a direct picture to mind, but it does bring meaning to mind. So when the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then later says that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Bible is telling us that Jesus is the full and final revelation of God himself. Yes. That Jesus, in fact, reveals to mankind 
what God is, what the meaning behind the word God, the name God. So we have that with Jesus. And of course, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6 tells us this. Verse 4, that um, the, the, which says, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And then, verse 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the God displayed his glory in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the word made flesh. Absolutely. So then it's, I think, worthwhile for us to just break down what is being said in John 1, 1, where the Bible says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. Um, it's very meaningful here. Um, the first thing that we learn is that uh, the Jesus Christ, the word, was in the beginning. So Eternal. That's right. Even though Matthew gives us an, a, a genealogy of him in his flesh, and Luke gives us another genealogy of him as a man, John is giving us not a genealogy, but an identity of Christ. Absolutely. What identifies him as God? He is eternal. There's So there's no beginning. That's what he's telling us. Well, God was here when he created time. Yeah. He's before time. He's That's eternal. Right. There was no God before him. There'll be none after him. The Greek word that's rendered in the beginning is the word arche. And arche refers to the origin of all things. So as the Bible says in another place, he is alpha and omega. So alpha is the first letter. There's nothing before it um, whatsoever. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. So the Bible never acknowledges even any kind of, never gives any credence to the secularist view of the origins of the world. The beginning of our world happened in a moment. Um, as the psalmist said in Psalm 33 and verse 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Verse 9, for he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. It's a simple thing. The origins of the world, he spake and it was done. Pretty simple. Yeah, yeah. So, and and this is a thing for us to know as well, that the history, that the beginning of our world happened in history. It's, uh, I think we've said this before, but it's not a matter of science. It's no. a matter of history. It is a matter of history. And it's amazing how atheists love to claim the scientific method until it comes to the origins of life. And then mm-hmm. they just conveniently push it to the side. Yeah. yeah. There, there was nobody there. Uh, to witness it, to see it. Yeah. And so, you know, it can't possibly be subjected to the scientific method. Yeah. It's a historical fact. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, um, in the beginning, not from the beginning, but in the beginning was the word. And the word was is really imperfect, really, really important. The word was there is the past tense verb of being. Um, but in the Greek, it is not all right. Um, our, the verse uses the direct verb of being in other places you might've had uh, like genomai, which means I become, but in the 14th verse, uh, the word was made flesh uses genomai. It means became all right. That's what Jesus became. But John 1, 1 tells us what Jesus was from the beginning. And the word was, there is not past tense. Um, our English version uses the past tense. All right. But the Greek there is using the imperfect indicative, I am. Um, so what is imperfect indicative? Well, the indicative tells you the reality. Um, it points to reality. So there are... Um, 
in in the Greek you have the subjunctive, which is um, that indicate um, potential action. Yeah. Okay. The indicative points to the reality of a thing. So this is this is what was um, here, but the imperfect explains why the verse says was instead of is. Okay. In the beginning was the word, not saying that this is past tense. All right. But the imperfect means, so perfect tense would show a completed action that is completed for all time, completed in the past and for all time. The imperfect shows an incomplete action. So it's something that keeps being. Um, so it, in other words, it has the sense of it kept in the beginning, kept on being the word. That's the idea behind the imperfect right there. Continuous, repeated, ongoing action, action that is never completed, so never finished. So he never stops being the word. He's never finished being the word. All right. So Jesus has always been and has always kept on being the word. All right. And there are in John 1, 1, there are three times that the word was is used. All three are that imperfect tense. So the Bible saying in the beginning, kept on being the word and the word kept on being with God and the word kept on being God. That's the idea behind those, the was there. And it really goes back to even um, Exodus three, when Moses comes upon the burning bush and he asked the name of God and he said, tell him I am have sent you. And so it's, uh, Mm-hmm. It's a never-ending, it's a tense that we can't even really describe. It's somebody that's always in the present. This is what Jesus said in John 8 when he said, Before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. And yeah. that was him making reference back to the same Absolutely. God that spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And as he said earlier, the Jews understood this because right. they took up stones to, to kill him. That's right. That's right. And so somebody needs to explain to the Jews that uh, <laughs> you know Jesus didn't claim to be God because they, they clearly... Thought, thought that he yeah. did, yep. Yep, yep, that's right. So then the third thing is that Jesus Christ the Word is best described as the Word. Right there. So the Word is the English rendering here of the Greek word logos. Now, logos is a familiar word. We, we have it all over the place in our language. The word logic comes from logos. Of course, all the logies, like theology, biology, criminology, all those things which are study of um, different fields of study um, come from logos. Uh, So, you know, there's a lot to say about logos, and particularly the Greek idea of logos, um, which they considered to be underlying all life. It was like the essential element of life, which is really interesting. And John's choice of that word um, is certainly full of meaning for that as well. Uh, but it's interesting that Logos here in John 1.1 1, 1 is rendered word um, because um, the word expresses the meaning of logos very concisely. It's it's an excellent um, translation, number one. Uh, but the point also tells us that Jesus Christ is God's expression to the world. He is God's word to the world, but not it's not just a spoken word. It's a living word. It's a, a, the word embodied. And that's the idea of the incarnation as well. That the word is a visible rendering of God's thoughts toward us. Yes. It's really an incredible thing. So much is revealed about God because Jesus came to this world to die for us. Yes. That, That tells us what a wonderful God God is. So all those caricatures of God, you know, the angry God of the Old Testament, the one that apparently Andy Stanley thinks that we need to be done with. <laughs> Unhitch ourselves from. Yes, yes. Um, is actually, it's the same God. Same God in the Old Testament revealed himself 
fully yes. in the person of Jesus Christ. It's really an, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so, ultimately, and this is why this is just such a big deal, because when we talk about Christmas time and the incarnation, either God entered into his creation to die for his creatures, mm-hmm. to live as the God-man, or God sent one of his creatures to die for his other creatures. Right, right. Which is really, I mean, that that almost is a slander against the character of God. It would only work for an individual creature. It could not work for the whole of humanity. No. So Jesus, as God, is able to represent the entirety of humanity, um, and and offer himself for the entirety of humanity. And I was actually uh, on the campus of Mississippi State University a few years back, and um, I was I got into conversation with some Jehovah's Witnesses who were out there with their sign and stand and everything, and and they told me that I was actually insult uh, insulting Jehovah God because I lifted somebody else to be a god on his same level. Mm. First of all, Jehovah's that name is an invention of Latin language. We'll I'll yeah. pass by that. I, I like Yahweh a whole lot better. Yeah. But um, but I said, ma'am, no, 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 no. You've got this all wrong. I said you're slandering God the Son mm-hmm. by saying that He's less than God. That's right. Because uh, and in the same conversation, they told me they believe Satan was a god, little g. <laughs> so yeah. what they've done is they've made Satan and Jesus to be on the same level, which basically. If we're being honest, the Mormons pretty much do the same thing because he's the spiritual brother of Satan, which means he's also a created being. Mm. And so in that sense, he's equal with Satan. Yeah. I mean, this is some pretty, this is serious stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So as the word, Jesus personifies God to us. He is, as um, D.A. Carson said it, uh, God's ultimate self-disclosure. Um he is the ultimate picture of God, the ultimate meaning of God. So then we also see that God was, uh, I'm sorry, the word was both with God and was God. And this is what... Sounds like Trinitarian language to well, me. Well, yeah. I mean, if you deny the Trinity, then you have to say that, well, this can't be. This is a this is uh, too much internal conflict here. There's a, uh, there's a self-contradiction in it. Uh, but let me just boil it down um, for you. Uh, the Jehovah's Witness translation, which you, I think we're going to read, and I don't know if you read it or not, so I'll read it here. They say that the verse, John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Little g God. Right. And I've had um, members of the LDS Church also tell me, that because there's no definite article before God, therefore a God is the right thing. Now, I'll just say this, point this out, that the Greek language does not have a definite, an indefinite article. It has a definite, but not an indefinite. In the Greek, and, and this is just um, a point that we need to understand when looking between the two, when the Greek uses the definite article it's speaking of something precise it's speaking of and quite often the 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 bible says the jesus so so we know it's not just a jesus there were a lot of different people with the name of jesus yeah but the jesus is the one that the bible is that's the point of the bible the subject of the bible but then names are used that way quite often actually in the greek where you'll have simon peter it'll be the simon peter Um, so it's speaking of a precise person when the definite article is left out, then it's speaking of essence, so that it's so. If you have the love, then you're speaking of a definite love. If you're if you have love with no definite article, then it's speaking of the essence of love. And so here we have with God and was God, and um, the Jehovah's Witnesses have exploited the fact that there's no definite article and added in the indefinite article of the English language, a God. And so then the Jehovah's Witnesses footnote the verse to say that this means that he was divine. Okay. Now, um, 
There are commentaries that have argued that because Theos has no article in the Greek, therefore John is not speaking of the actual being and person of God, but is speaking of the essence of deity. So there are a couple problems with that argument. Um, First of all, the Greek does have a word for divine, and it doesn't use that word here. It uses the word for God. All right. Secondly, if the verse included the definite article, then we would have a different problem altogether. Because if we said that the word was the God, that would mean that the word is all that God is. Yeah, exactly. That no divine being exists apart from the word. But in fact, the way the verse is worded in the Greek, John intends to emphasize that the word was God. Like John the Apostle is gathering around all of us, his listeners, his readers, and gathering us around the one who he has entitled the Word. He's pointing him out to us and saying, look at him. Yeah. Do you see him? Call him the Word and remember he is God. That's the force. And and look at the language, uh, not only of deity, but also triune deity. Uh, when I read this, it says, in the beginning, which we've already discussed is prior to the existence of time, the eternality of God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says the same was in the beginning with God. Now, is is God just being repetitive there? (laughs) Was John, did he just mess that up? Every word is important in what he's saying. Every word is meaningful. I believe it's reference to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's the only way to resolve the the conflict. Yes, it's the only logical, consistent thought. That's right. And then, I love this too, because it goes on to say uh, in verse 3, in reference to the word, it says all things were made by him, and without mm-hmm. him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. I mean, he's literally attributing creation back to this word, the logos. That's right. I mean, if this isn't divine language, I mean, it's just unbelievable the mental gymnastics it takes to get away from this. Well, it's it's a mark of unbelief. It's it's a refusal to submit yourself to the Word of That's God, it. to receive the Word of God, which is, by the way, in Scripture. Um, and, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about the text issue, um, but this is the issue when it comes to the text issue as well. Do we receive the Word, or do we determine what the Word is That's and what it, it says? Um, the biblical view is to receive the Word. This is what God's people have always done. They received it from Him. And taken it and said, okay, then what does it mean? And what is he saying here? And then make that the authority in our lives. And, and kind of going back to the text issue itself, and, and I know I, I briefly mentioned this in one of our previous episodes, but uh, every single major cult in this country came to us between the year of 1830 mm-hmm. and 1879. Now, this is a period where the Enlightenment killed oh, yeah. our thinking oh, yeah. as far as the the uh, scriptures go, uh, German rationalism, oh. uh, you know, all of those things, and the Second Great Awakening where basically, you know, you had guys like Finney that were abandoning sound exegesis of the text for this emotionalism. Yeah. And this is where Jehovah's Witness came from, as I mentioned. It's It's where... Uh, the Mormonism, Mormons came from. And prior to that, there was no alternate view on this Mm -hmm. issue. Like it was just universal across the board. And so I go back to either these guys are just, they've just fabricated this whole thing or the church got it wrong. (laughs) The entire church got it wrong. For all history. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which is what the, that's the LDS claim that the, from the time of the apostles that everyone got it wrong until Joseph Smith came And it just points to a God who's not big enough and powerful enough to preserve his word. Yeah, that's right. So I just, that's just a world that, that I can't live in. Yeah. But some people seem to be pretty comfortable with it. So the word is not all that God is. 
Um, that's that's the apostolic um, heresy right there, is that the word is all that God is. Um, it's Jesus only. Uh, the word was with God, so we see that he is distinct from God, and yet he is identified as God himself. And so, and this is the beauty, is that then we go to John one fourteen. And we see in John 1, 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there, the, the Greek word that's rendered dwelt, is actually the Greek word for tabernacle. As in the tabernacle of the Old Testament, that the word tabernacled among us. And so you, you get the, the image of the glory of God that was housed. And an interesting thing about the Old Testament ta- tabernacle, it was covered with sheaths, really, of of goat's hair. It would have been an ugly thing from the outside, not glorious. The glory of the tabernacle was what was inside of it. Yes, and that that speaks of God coming to us bodily. Right. Uh, The Apostle Paul uses the same language about our bodies. Yes. That the earthly body of this tabernacle being dissolved, talking about our souls going to heaven. Yes. And so, yet again, God incarnate, God manifested in the flesh. Yep. And the Bible made it very clear about the Messiah. In fact, Isaiah 53 says, describes him, there's no form uh, nor comeliness. Um, and when you see him, there's no beauty in him that you would desire him. Yeah. Um, he was despised and forsaken of man, of, uh, I'm sorry, despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, etc. Um, we know that as Philippians 2 teaches us, uh, that he, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So the Bible is telling us that on the outside, it was, it's a shock when you, when you're hearing these grand things about the Messiah, that he is the Logos, he is the energizing force, the life of this world. And he is, he kept on being in the beginning with God. He, he was, he is the origin of all things. He's with God. He is God. He's um, all of that. And then to point at Jesus of Nazareth and say, that's the word. Yeah. So, one of the things we enjoy celebrating, in fact, what we, we have up at our house, we have it here at our church, and so on, is a manger scene. And you have that little baby in the manger. And it's just hard to think of the Ancient of Days, the God of all gods and the King of all kings, coming in the form of that little tiny baby with all the neediness of a baby to be fed, to be cared for, totally dependent on his creation. And he was as much God in that manger absolutely, as he is right now, seated at the right hand of the Father. And, uh, you know, somebody once said that there's been hundreds of babies that became a king, mm. but there's only been one king who became a baby. Became a baby. Yeah. The creator made himself the creation, yes. the thing that he had created, and he did that in order to redeem his lost creation. And I'd say this for the sake of our, our Christian listeners who may have some reservations about celebrating Christmas. And I know that that sort of thing is not new. It's been around for many years. And in fact, I think Spurgeon was pretty anti-Christmas when he started out. Um, and then over years became more tolerant of it, but never really embraced His it. His heart grew two sizes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably because he didn't have um, a, a Hallmark movies available yeah, to him. That's what it was. Yeah, that's right. He would have known the true meaning of, <laughs> of Christmas. But but I say, you know, like I, I, can't, I can't say that Jesus was born December 25th. There's no reason no. to think that he was. Um, though Alfred Edersheim in his Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah makes a really good case for Jesus being born somewhere in December. Um, but that's neither here nor there. I say this, what we're celebrating, not when. It's not about the day, what. it's about the event. I don't think that, for instance, in the Soviet Union, 
I don't think that their ban on Christmas trees was because Christmas trees were a pagan symbol. No. And I don't think that the world's hatred of the phrase Merry Christmas would indicate that they just don't want us celebrating these pagan holidays. No. I think they know full well what it is we're celebrating. And I think that Christians, God's people, ought to be able to say, you know what? I may not like all the things that are associated with Christmas, but I sure love it that Jesus, that God became a man yeah. and dwelled among us. The Word was made flesh. And I can celebrate the incarnation of the Word any day of the year, uh, every day of the year. But this is the day that people know this is what we're celebrating. Let's celebrate it with gusto. Absolutely. And we're going to wrap this one up, but we're going to stay kind of in this same vein as we get closer to Christmas. I mean, it's so important. I mean, we celebrate Christmas. What what exactly are we celebrating? Like, I'm just such a, I mean, I'm such an analytical guy. Like, I, I don't just like to do stuff just because. And so why do you, why do you even celebrate Christmas? What's the point? Yeah. I mean, why does, why does the world set aside this day? What, what is such a big deal about this? Well, the big deal is that God came to this earth. God the Son, the creator of all things, came to this earth, took upon human flesh, born of a virgin, yeah. lived as a God-man among his creatures, died on the cross for his creatures, rose from the dead on the third day. That's just, the thought is just unimaginable. Yeah. He didn't, God didn't send one of his creatures to die for his other creatures. He came to this earth veiled in flesh. If if a man had invented the Christian religion, just made it up, pull cloth out of his mind, he would not have had God make himself into the thing he had made. No. In order to save that thing. He would have had he would have had another person come in and be the superhero and save everybody or something like that. Those are the stories that men write. Yeah, you're the story that right God writes is the story of him invading our world in order to redeem his lost creation yes and that's the glory of christmas so we'll be on this topic again next week but uh we'd love to hear your comments questions criticisms uh, i'm the pastor of grace baptist church and you can visit our website gracebaptistlogan.org and my personal email address is preacher of grace that's one word preacher of grace at yahoo.com pastor malinak and I'm Dave Melanek, the pastor of Berean Baptist Church in Ogden. And uh, my email address is P, as in Pastor Melanek, my last name, at gmail.com. And I welcome your emails. Till next week, we love you. God bless.